Good morning, and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning, and we are very glad that you're here. I would like to extend a special welcome to the visitors here this morning. We come from a long heritage that teaches us that there is a spark of the divine in every person. It is in the spirit of that heritage that I ask you to greet the holy in our midst by welcoming the persons to your right and left this morning. Bring into your heart a sense of the holy. Partly weak and weary, partly in hope and peace, in this moment, let the depth of your soul find love. In the silence, feel the strength of this community. Notice the earth beneath you and the sky above you. You belong and you matter. Let us enter the silence. I'm grateful to Meg Barnhouse for lending me her pulpit this morning, and to the worship committee who did not object, and the musicians and the flowers and the order of service and the greeters and the ushers and all the people, including Mike Leberkian, who made this service possible and for the fact that all of you are here. Thank you. My sister sent me this book for my birthday. Some assembly required. It's the book from which Mike read the first reading. And I thought, how nice. A memoir about a mother who reflects on motherhood through the eyes of her son and her infant grandson. I'm not yet a grandmother, though I harbor hopes in that direction. <laughs> but the story was engaging, and it brought back a lot of wonderful memories about raising two baby boys who are now no longer babies. But what I didn't expect was for the author to take me with her on that two-week trip to India. And that brought back additional wonderful memories about my own trip to India about 18 months ago. The journey for that author and for me and for a lot of Westerners who visit India, it was a cultural immersion into the complexity of a very unusual country. It's about as big as the United States and it has as many differences all throughout the country. And it was a spiritual experience for me beyond an easy description or understanding. So take a dive with me this morning into that spirituality. There were a lot of trucks on the road, so they would usually have religious symbols on the windshield. So we'd know if they were Hindu or Muslim and what sect they were from the symbol and the little rickshaws that were commonly called tuk-tuks and tuk 
people around like little taxis, and they would have the religious symbols that also. Anne Lamott mentioned the puja, the devotions that people offered flowers and uh, spices and some other things for their offerings. And since this was a spiritual pilgrimage, our leader, Abhi Janamanchi, took us to temples and mosques and churches and so forth. And on about the third or fourth day, we went to Chidambaram, which is a town in South India, in Tamil Nadu. And it's a beautiful old temple. We went for the evening ritual, the fire ritual, and went into the stone building, dusk. And as we entered, there were bells ringing. There were hundreds of bells ringing on you know, all sides, from small bells to large bells. So the cl- it was kind of clamorous. And then I thought to myself, no, this is not noise. Don't think of it as noise. Those are sound waves. Just let them flow. Let them flow. It's okay. It's going to be fine. And I just kind of immersed myself into the sound. And then we went in to see the fire ritual, and there were hundreds of people there doing their prayers and saying things in Hindi. And I didn't really know what was going on, but the Shiva, the statue of Shiva was there. The priest was doing certain things. There were fires, little oil lamps all over the place, hundreds of oil lamps burning. So the heat was getting more and more, and there were all these people straining to see. And then from the side room, a bunch of monks came in and added their bodies to the crowd and say, we were really pressed together. And so you have the human element, the pressure and the the smells and the fire and those bells ringing. And those Catholics are pikers. (laughs) This was a real immersion, a total sensory experience. And then, of course, you've read about the Ganges River, which is a holy and sacred river from birth to death, where people go there to be cleansed. They go there to do their daily laundry. They go there to bury their dead. It's as sacred as in Tokyo, Mount Fujisan. And it's a lot more sacred than our own Statue of Liberty that carries with it so much symbology. But that depth of spirituality in India coexists with this earthiness of which Lamont spoke the earthiness that we don't experience all that often. In India, spirituality competes with greed. Beauty competes with squalor. Generosity competes with corruption. Elders, children, and homeless people of all ages compete for scraps of welfare. In the United States, those of us in the middle class or above seldom have to see this level of complexity, even though we do go serve meals to the homeless. But it's here. Mostly it's hidden. At the resource center or across the tracks or on the other side of I-35, and occasionally it's in the eyes of a panhandler on your street corner our kind of beggars. 
But in India, there's just a lot more of it in plain sight and in your space. Not just one panhandler, but a whole crowd of them at every turn. My colleague, the Reverend Leonora Montgomery of Houston, once said that everyone ought to travel to India at least once in a lifetime. I now pass that advice on to you if you are comfortable with the unexpected. How many have been there? No, Mike has. Several of you have been there. It's quite a remarkable country. But even without a trip to India, you may have seen India in the movies in recent years, including the widely known Slumdog Millionaire in 2008 and Best Exotic Marigold Hotel just this year. Actor Dev Patel stars in both of them. And in Marigold Hotel, he welcomes a group of British retirees. Welcome to the Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. It's rather a dilapidated hotel. Perhaps he was not quite ready to entertain guests. But he is trying to make a go of the family business, and he thought he could attract elders to India. And so these seven people were among the first. He said other people in other countries don't like their old people, so why shouldn't they come to India where we can take care of them? He figures he can outsource old age <laughs> and bring the old people to live in India. He will start with the English and expand from there. The promotion worked. A little before, he was quite ready. And when someone complained about the lack of amenities, he told her, we have a saying in India, everything will be all right in the end. So if it is not all right, it is not yet the end. There is nothing like a sense of optimism when things are going wrong. Now, each of those British tourists had a different set of expectations, and as a result, very different experiences. One man was quite enthralled with India, and he tried to explain his attraction to his complaining wife, and he said he loved the light, the color, and the smiles. A trip to India is what you bring to it. And yet, it is best if you leave behind all of your expectations. In the movie, of course, the hotel manager was right. Everything was all right in the end. Four years ago, the same actor, Dev Patel, had already played the lead in Slumdog Millionaire. Time and again, he explained the unexpected outcome with another saying. It is written. In that sense, we can't be quite sure that everything is going to be all right in the end. And we can't stop trying, but it is written conveys to me a sense of fatalism rather than optimism. We learned in that movie over and over again that it was inevitable that his character, Jamal, 
would finally rescue and marry the beautiful Latika, played by Frida Pinto. The movie starts when they are just children living in a slum. But as a teenager, Jamal somehow found himself on a television competition, the equivalent of our Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Unfortunately, he was suspected by the show's sponsors of cheating. And so in between the television shows, he was in the back room being tortured to find out how he knew and how he was cheating to get the right answers time and again. But the whole country was enthralled with him and enthralled that he won 100 million or so rupees. It was written But I wonder by whom? By God? By Allah? By fate? Take your pick. But why stop with a predictable trinity? Was it written by Moira? Yahweh? Wotan? Fanku? Ra or Zeus? The list surely goes on and on. And we're still trying to figure out who wrote those rules. Jamal's backstory touches on many of the rougher aspects of India, starting with those homeless orphans who lived in the landfills. Unscrupulous scavengers of children would entice and kidnap dozens of these street kids to give them a place to stay, and then turned them into beggars or slaves, prostitutes, or classical dancers. One source estimated the number at 300,000 child beggars in a population of 1.2 billion overall. In the begging industry, the children don't get the money, of course. They have to turn it over to the gangsters or maybe their own parents if they're lucky enough to have any. Well, I wanted to know more than Bollywood could tell me. And so I turned to Shashi Tarur, who wrote a book on India with wit and depth. He wrote from, the mid- from Midnight to the Millennium and Beyond, looking at the 50th anniversary, and, and he has a 10-year Uh, addendum to that, to update it. He loves India. He has a lot of pride in it, but he has a lot of critique as well. Tarur observes that India is not a welfare state. The government does not provide much help to the teeming multitudes who live in poverty. But India is what he calls a welfare society that's based on friendship, and family, that people will help each other out, give them a place to live, help them find a job, and it's usually based on family ties, affiliation to the informal caste system, or a connection to the village or neighborhood. But outside those circles, very little attention is paid. Therefore, you will see nice apartments inside buildings that are dirty, and unkempt. Tarur remembers that his mother 
asked her servant sweeper to sweep the apartment stairs and would pay her extra. And the woman was incredulous. She said, why, why, madam, when they are not your stairs? And that kind of attitude helps explain why you will see beautifully kept homes that are accessible only through filthy public spaces. Personal hygiene exists alongside indifference for public sanitation. Sewage systems reek and overflow in places. And pollution generates staggering levels of respiratory illnesses. Even isolated areas that are environmentally conscious, even there the regulations are routinely ignored. After all, unemployment is a greater political liability than lung cancer. You see some irony here? That basic argument, job creation versus health care, will constitute our own political discourse even beyond the next election. The rationale in the two countries is different, but the effect is similar. In Austin, we do have social services, but the recipients are mostly out of sight. I would hasten to say that the Indian government is trying mightily to meet the needs of of the people. And there are lots of activists and charities trying to fill the gaps but the sheer numbers overwhelm every system. India has this world's second largest population after China. The population growth over the past 25 years has increased more than the entire U.S. population today. Deforestation has degraded land and reduced its agricultural capacity. How in the world can anyone provide enough food, clean water and air, health care and education, not to mention housing? No wonder beggars swarm the streets. One billion dollars a year is spent on population control. The most popular form of birth control is sterilization. But the young adults who opt for that are already in their 30s and they've already had more children than it's good for them or their country. But the kids who survive to grow up become a source of labor for the family and also social security for the elders. I mentioned hundreds of charities and activist organizations. Some of them are in India, many in India, like Mother Teresa's, and foreign charities. And they labor daily to save the children and the sick. One local example is the Miracle Foundation that was founded on Mother's Day about 12 years ago by Austinite Caroline Boudreaux. She couldn't stand the poverty that she saw in India among the orphans, 
And she came home to launch the Miracle Foundation, which is headquartered on 6th Street near West Lynn. The website says, The Miracle Foundation is a vibrant and trusted nonprofit organization that empowers orphans to reach their full potential, one child at a time. They support five orphanages now in rural areas around India and have transformed the lives of hundreds of children. They provide safety, nutritious food, and education that work miracles. And of course, they also take donations. But I was interested to know that $75 is the cost to cover one child's medical needs for a year, including, it says, all necessary vaccinations, annual medical checkups, deworming, and pharmaceutical sundries. I was a little put off by that reference to deworming. But I do seem to remember that one of my sons brought home pinworms and another one brought home head lice. And we've had ringworm in the family. Maybe it's not so foreign after all. Some Miracle Foundation volunteers go as ambassadors to work in India for a week, and they discover that their hearts melt. In addition to social services, the Indian government is also trying to address population growth and health concerns through literacy and education. And some of you might remember long time ago, I did a previous sermon here and talked about the kids who lived in the landfill. They didn't have a school until a high school graduate decided that she could teach children. And so she set up a school for about 70 kids every day, teaches them Hindi and English and the local language, teaches them arithmetic and writing and some songs. The kids are about 12 years old and younger, while her husband is advocating for worker rights. And we watched her when she would call on a child. The kid would stand up and recite the answer or sing the song. The children didn't have shoes to wear, but outside their huts, adult shoes were lined up outside the door or up on top of the roof. Take off your shoes before you go into your dirt hut. If you go, be prepared for transformation. Not that you can just order up transformation off some menu, but everything under the sun is right there in front of you. The light, the colors, the smiles. The spirit of a fiercely spiritual people who live close to the earth. Yesterday, I went to the Miracle Foundation to meet its founder, Caroline Boudreaux. Over a cup of coffee, I asked about her personal journey. A dozen years ago, she and a friend took a trip to India Actually, they went all the way around the world, but one of their stops was in India where her friend had sponsored a child and had pictures and 
Caroline was a little bit skeptical. Said, oh, yeah, they send those photos to about two dozen people around the country and just get money. But in spite of the skepticism, it turns out that that child was real and he had a family of sorts because he lived in the orphanage. Well, it happened to be Mother's Day in the United States, and Caroline had called home, as she should, to recognize that affinity and love for and with her mother. And then they visited this orphanage. And she said the children kind of cling to you like Velcro. They were called Velcro children. And Caroline picked up a baby girl. And the baby girl just kind of clung to her and buried herself deep in her chest. And what could Caroline do but sing a lullaby, knowing it was Mother's Day? She sang that baby to sleep. And then she took the baby to the dorm to put her to bed. And when she got in there, all the beds were made of wood. No mattresses, nothing soft, just wood. It's easy to clean. And when she put that baby down, that baby girl, she could feel the bones of the baby meet the bones of the wood. And Caroline was transformed. She knew right then that she had to do something to save and help these children. And so that's the birth story of the Miracle Foundation. And Caroline also reminded me of Abraham Maslow's Pyramid of Needs. You've seen it. It's been around for decades where on the big bottom of the pyramid you have things like food and water and clothing and shelter and safety. And she said it goes all the way up till you get to justice and ethics and self-actualization. But she said, you know, I figured out that up at the top, those of us who are up at the top need to lean over. That pyramid needs to come back down and touch the bottom. Not just touch it, but lift it up. That's what we need to be doing. Today and every week and on the wall, you gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. But I invite you to consider the broadest possible application. You nourish souls, but also bodies and minds. Transform lives, not just your own, but maybe someone else's. And you do justice here at home and maybe somewhere that tugs at your heart. And then your life will overflow. Namaste. Amen. We can't change our children, so we need to change for our children. Breathe in 
hand out. Speak with friends as needed. Go out. Roll up your sleeves. Say hello to strangers. Plant trees, even though you will not see them grow. Pick up litter, even though you'll see more tomorrow. Find your calling. Kindle any flicker of life and light that you can find. Feel free to join me. Om Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org.